with what is a PE, how you diagnose it. All right, I figure if you don't know that now, then afterward, check out Tintinelli for a little while. Okay, but this is basically going to talk to you about the Pilopet study, okay, which is the big study on how to like work out PEs. And it's mainly going to be just some diagrams and to give you kind of a working template on how to work out PEs based on probability and things like that. So this is kind of a nuts and bolts type talk. Um, this is kind of a hybrid of the talk that I gave at um, at the an the annual um, uh, PA conference here that was held in Marriott. So this is kind of a hybrid of that. But in standard tradition, I have to start off with my 80s movie theme, I mean my television theme. Uh, these aren't working. <laughs> What a classic. Remember this? You know who owns the actual Night Rider car? Joey Fatone from NSYNC actually owns the Night Rider car. This is awesome. What's that, Thomas? Yeah, do you see that? He actually owns the original Night Rider car. Yeah, he owns one of them. There's only, there's only, they crashed a bunch of them, but there's like one still left, and he owns it. All right. Med students over here are like, who is this person? All right. All right. Let's go. Dude, that was amazing. All right, so the basic thing. So we all understand that PEs are life-threatening illness. Okay, we, we have to stipulate that. And we all understand the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism can be difficult. Okay, we know that. And we all understand that we all missed the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. If you've practiced long enough, you have missed the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. If you haven't, then you haven't practiced long enough. You will miss this, okay? It's guaranteed. The quicker, the sooner you accept this, okay, the easier life's gonna be. We are gonna miss the diagnosis. And this is interesting. The, um, not this one, I got the next slide. We all understand that people with pulmonary embolism have chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, yada, 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 or nothing at all, okay? So we all understand that too, right? So people can have all these textbook signs or they can have nothing. We all know about using EKGs and the ABGs really aren't helpful and chest x-ray and CT. So we all know about using those things. We all, knows how to anti we all know how to anticoagulate somebody that's had a PE. And if you're unclear, then you need to read about this, okay? If you're unclear about anything that I've said in the last two slides, then you need to read more about that. So, the rest of the story, and these are the basic things that I want to talk to you about. And this is mainly a review to some of you, and it might be some new information to some of you. Um, so, but I think it's a good global review. So, just in just in general, PEs probably account for about 100 to 200 deaths, 200,000 deaths per year, and it's the leading cause of unexpected death in the hospital. So, if you're just kind of walking along and there's like a code. Okay, and, and if somebody's had a cast on their leg from their orthopedic surgery, they just probably died from their PE, okay? So it is the leading cause of unexpected death in the hospital. And studies have shown that more than half of fatal PEs are not even suspected, even anti-mortem. They're still like, oh, I'm not sure what killed them, you know, and they've got like this big saddle embolus, okay? And this is interesting. Studies have shown that clinicians miss PE when it's present and they suspect it when it's not, okay? That's kind of the fallacy or whatever the, our makeup is as clinicians is that when it's there, we're just kind of clueless. We're like, doo, 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 you know, we're, we don't care. But like when it's not there, we're like all X-wing on them. You know, we're getting all sorts of things, CTing their chest, like ultrasound their legs, and it's not even a possibility. And that's kind of what studies have shown. Where people, the, 
on people that have uh, looked at people working on PEs. So, the nuts and bolts. So, the biggest thing is criti clinical probability assessment. Okay, this is huge. And what that is, is gut feeling. Okay, as you progress through your career, your gut feeling gets better. His gut feeling is better than yours. Okay, it has nothing to do with the fact that about intelligence or, or where you went to med school or what you did your residency in, it doesn't matter. He's just seen more people than you have, so his gut feeling's better, okay? So that's a big part of it. A big part of what we do in medicine is gut feeling, right? When you walk in, you're like, okay, like your gut feeling moving that dude from eight to like four, okay? That's not in any textbook, okay? That's gut feeling. The Wells criteria helps, and this helps rate the probability of PE based on historical and physical find exam findings of the, of the patient. And then if you have less than equal to four points, the clinical probability of PE is low, okay? If you have greater than four points, it's clinical probability is likely, okay? Not saying it's high, it's just possible. Okay, does everybody understand that? So that's what the Wells criteria gives you. The combination of your gut feeling and the Wells criteria should kind of help guide your testing. Okay, so you've got kind of a kind of a subjective. Oh, I don't know. I, I think that's what it is, and some objective as well. And those are the two things that should help guide your uh, evaluation. So a quick reminder to what the Wells criteria is. Okay, so if you got clinical signs and symptoms, you get three points. If alternative diagnosis is less likely, three, and you can kind of read for yourself. So these are the things in the Wells criteria that you can accumulate points for. Okay, and stop you guys have any questions as we go through this. So D-dimer, real quickly, it's a degradation product of cross-linked fibrin. A negative ELISA D-dimer result is good at excluding low-risk patients, okay? And this is more for like the students. This is what the D-dimer is, right? You guys are ordering it, and so this is exactly what it means. So it's good when it's negative, okay? But a positive D-dimer test result could indicate that a P or DVT is possible, but it's not proof positive. Okay, so you guys understand, if it's negative, it's a very good test, but if it's positive, well, we don't know. We might need to investigate more. And this is very important, too. A negative D-dimer in light of high clinical suspicion should not be ignored, okay? It's a good test, but if they just got run over by a train, had a leg in a cast, and just came from China, and have, like, pleuritic chest pain and a heart rate of 120, and if their D-dimer is negative, okay, this is not somebody that follows up with a regular doctor in 24 hours, okay? You cannot ignore negative D-dimers in, in light of high clinical suspicion. The VQ scan, there will be a generation of people that don't train with VQ scan. I'm kind of the last of the people that even got one. And there will be people I think may, may end up graduating from our residency that never get a VQ scan, okay? It was kind of going out of favor when I was graduating. The results of a VQ scan, who, who's got familiarity with what a VQ scan is? Okay, so there's, you can always start, already start telling students, have you guys done radiology already? Mm -hmm. uh, you guys went through radiology without knowing what a VQ scan is? All right, so you can, always, you can also tell there's people out there that are training without knowing what a VQ scan is, but you may end up going to a place that has them or may want you to get them. So, Dean, what's a VQ scan? How does it work? Perfect, so results of a VQ scan are classified as normal, low, intermediate, or high probability for PE. That's what comes on the piece of paper, okay? from your radiologist. Having a normal scan is great, okay? That's rare. For somebody to come back and say, yeah, it's a normal VQ scan, it's a rarity. If it's high probability, in the right clinical context, these people need anticoagulation, all right? So in the right clinical context, it comes back high probability, then they have most likely a PE. Low probability scans are good, um, 
unless there was a high suspicion for PE. So you've got the person you know, that just got off the plane from China with the leg in their cast, and you're like, I know they have a PE, and you scan them, it comes back low probability, okay? You, you can't ignore that, okay? So there's a limitation to that as well. And intermediate probability is problematic. Like, that doesn't tell you much. Exactly, and that's why I bring this up. I put this slide in there so people understand what the limitations of a VQ scanner are because there are people that, A, want you to get it or things like that. I want to, I want to give you guys some information on what you can say, why you can say, you know, I don't know if that's a good idea, okay? So this is, this. if you get this, great, okay? If you get this, great. If you get this, at least, you know, you, you can either anticoagulate them empirically or move on to other studies, but this is what you're going to get, okay? So in the PyoPed study, nearly 40% of the VQ scans are read as intermediate probability. Okay, that's the inherent problem with this test. And of these 40%, 33% of these people had a PE. Okay, so that's a, that's a big deal, right? 40% in intermediate probability, and of these 40%, 33 of them had a PE. And so essentially, if you have an intermediate probability probability VQ scan, they probably need more imaging. Okay. And thus, the limitation of the study are that a high percentage of them come back intermediate probability. Okay? Cool? Other limitations of the VQ scan, um, the technology and interpreter can affect the results. You have long scan times. Um, oftentimes, you need to assemble a team to perform the study. And um, you know, it's good if the chest x-ray is normal and the, the people are reading it use predefined criteria and if the intermediate tests are followed up. If, if you can't really have any of these things, then a VQ scan has significant limitations. So I would try to avoid that at all costs. MR pulmonary angiography, it's shown some promise in evaluation of PE. Um, there's no ionizing radiation to the patient. Um, gadolinium is less toxic to the kidneys and fewer allergic reactions. Um, you can also look at pelvic and lower extremity vessels and you can look for other diagnoses with MR pulmonary angiography. That's kind of in the pipeline as well. Has limited availability. There's a longer acquisition time. Um, you have problems with the respiratory and cardiac motion artifact. Problems with the older metallic hardware. There's the claustrophobia issue and you may miss some uh, sub-segmental sub clots. So again, it looks promising, but it's not, it's not fully accepted as the mode of choice. Uh, it may be beneficial for pregnant patients and, and beneficial for patients in renal insufficiency. So, I'm not going to talk about CT, okay? We know enough of that. We get enough CTs of the thorax to know about that. But I wanted to really summarize VQ and MR pulmonary angiography, which may be coming down the pipe as the next kind of modality of choice. Imaging pregnancy, right? We all run into, because pregnant people are higher risk for having a PE or higher risk, and then we get into problems with nobody wants to image them, right? You try to order a CT on somebody that's pregnant, you know, in a lot of places, they're not going to do it. Well, generally, missing the diagnosis of PE is considered much worse than a dose of ionizing radiation, in general, okay? And there have been a couple studies where, uh, Chan did a study where they studied 120 women who got a BQ scan, and there weren't, um, any adverse events in 110 live births that were followed to median of 20 months. Um, and then there was another study where they uh, found that the aver average fetal radiation dose of in chest CT was actually less than a VQ scan. 
Okay, and that's important. That if that line is important for you to understand, or that piece of information for you to know. So if you, people often think it's the opposite of that, and, and so you, that's a that's a really important. So write this down. Radiology 2002, the Weiner Murum article. Because next time radiology tries to give you a, a hard time and says, well, let's get a VQ scan instead, okay, you can, you can say, well, according to the 2002 radiology article of the Weiner Murum person, that actually it's, you know, the average dose of field radiation is less with a chest CT than it is with a VQ scan, all right? And this comes from their own literature, okay? It's not from the Annals of Emergency Medicine, it's from radiology, all right? I've actually had to pull this out before. Because you will go to places, maybe places that you know maybe don't understand this, where you know you want to order a chest CT, and they're like, "Oh, let's get a VQ scan." Okay, I wouldn't. Exactly. So there's other modalities too. So let's say that you don't want to do this, or they're re they're really resistant to you doing this. Then you can start off with ultrasounding legs. Okay, and if you end up having to do a CT, you can still shield the abdomen. Okay, I mean they can move it down enough where you can have some shielding. So you know this because so. If, if you want to start off with more conservative, ultrasound the legs, okay, if you find a DVT, you're done. But if you have to do a chest CT, you can shield the abdomen, still do a chest CT. It's possible, and also use that. So there are ways to, to work with the radiologist to get your scans. Don't let them restrict you from working up your patients, okay? Because missing a PE, you know, and having like a pregnant woman like face down in her cereal at breakfast, okay, is not good. MR has some hope, but it's not quite the level of accuracy as a chest CT at this time. And again, use proper shielding and dose reduction. Okay, there's enough, they can also do that. They can also give a reduced dose. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of flexibility in how you work up pregnant people for PE, okay? So use it. All right, so the next, so the next slides essentially are basically flow charts just to kind of help better plan how you evaluate people. So I go back to the slide. So you walk into a room and they've got chest pain, okay? And it's kind of pleuritic and all these things. Gut feeling, right away. It's either high, moderate, or low. Right away you need to make this, okay? Right now, you guys need to start off when you enter the room, okay? And, and if PE enters your, your mind, you have to commit to something, okay? This is what help your, your guide your evaluation. So you have to commit to something and use the Wells criteria to the best of your ability and make some type of preclinical probability judgment. Okay, so use this and the Wells criteria. Now, the D-dimer, okay? So if you suspect, using the D-dimer, if you suspect a PE, and if, you're, and if you've decided this is low or moderate clinical probability, okay, get a D-dimer. Okay, don't order the D-dimer and they're like, oh, I think it's low or high. You have to make a decision, okay, low or moderate or high. If it's low or moderate, go for the D-dimer. If it's high clinical probability, don't order it, right? We've all had this discussion, okay? You're like, don't like order that. So make a decision and then if it's negative, you're done, okay? If it's positive, you have to do further testing. If it's high, you have to do further testing, okay? If you stick with this, for the most part, you won't go wrong, okay? Remember we talked about not getting D-dimers on people at high clinical probability. All right, so, sorry, this is kind of a busy slide. So let's say you're on the clo low clinical probability pathway. So you decide this low clinical probability and you have a positive D-dimer, okay? 
I suggest that you go to um, a chest CT, okay? In certain places, they also do venography. So where I trained, they did both. So if we ordered a chest CT, they also scanned their legs. So we'd also look for DVT at the same time. So there's the possibility. So everybody understand the follow through? So they, they wait, there's a delay time. When it goes to your legs, they start scanning again, okay? So that's what I recommend. Either a CT, so chest CT or chest CT with venography. That should be your, your uh, modality of choice. Exactly, so, the, so the, the new age, like the 64 slice scanner. And they've also got kind of the ones that are kind of the, the, the ones that rotate around to the spiral. So exactly, that's an excellent point. Thanks, Dr. Hornick. So make sure you're using, you know, based on, the, and these recommendations are based on the 64 slice. If your chest CT is negative, the negative predictive value is 96%, okay, if you have a negative chest CT. If you combine that with venography of the legs, it's about 97%. Okay, so that's good. And if that's what you have, you're done for the most part. It's negative, no treatment. Now, if you've got a positive chest CT, the positive predictive value is 58%. And if you also did chest and legs, it's 57%. And you're like, oh, why is that? Because you start off with low clinical probability, right? It, you can, your test could be wrong, right? I mean, you're like, I don't think this person has it, but yeah, they got a D-dimer. And then all of a sudden, we, haven't we all had people that it comes back right as positive and they get anticoagulated and they go look at it and it was like negative? I've had patients like that where it's been read as positive and they you know, get put on heparin and all this thing and they've never had a PE. So you have to understand that if you get a positive chest CT or CT venography in somebody that was low clinical probability, it's not a slam dunk, they have a PE, okay? Um, if this is read as sub, if it's segmental, the positive predictive value goes up, okay? I mean, it, it, if it's read as segmental or sub-segmental, these are your positive predictive values, 68 and 25%, and what the recommendation is that you either repeat it it, wait in 24 to 36 hours, or you ultrasound their legs if you didn't do venography, or you get a VQ scan or a serial ultrasound. So essentially what this is saying is that if you have low clinical probability, you get a positive D-dimer and you image them, and it comes back positive for like segmental or sub-segmental, don't just kind of go off and, you know, put them on the floor for like, you know, heparinizing them and things like that. You may need to do some further investigation. But if it's a main or low bar PE, then it's probably right. It's the right diagnosis you treat, okay? So this is the most confusing slide. I apologize for that, but does everybody understand that? John, no, okay. So basically what it's saying is that if you start with low clinical probability and you happen to get a positive D-dimer, okay? So we, we get those, right? We're like, yeah, we don't think it is, but all of a sudden it comes back positive. If the CT is positive for PE, it, has, it depends on where, you have to look at where it is, okay? If it comes back as like a, like a large vessel, okay, then most likely it's true that there is a PE. This is kind of a weird presentation. We thought it was low probability, positive D-dimer, but it's a, it's a low bar PE or a main vessel PE, and they recommend that you treat that, okay? But if it comes back as a PE that's segmental or sub-segmental, some of the, the pilot study kind of questions, you know, is that really accurate? They're, th they're saying maybe you should do some further imaging or further testing before you just commit yourself to a diagnosis of PE. Right, so you may, you may do like a dose of Lominox and admit them and, you know, hydrate them and either re-CT them or do their legs or do venography or if they're a better candidate, do like a VQ scan, you know, if they have a normal chest x-ray and 
no other problems. So all, all it's saying is if you have low clinical probability and you've got like a subsegmental PE that's kind of red out here, they're saying don't commit them to like three months of like warfarin. Yeah. So that's the essential point of this whole area is that just don't commit somebody to three months of Coumadin based on a result like this, okay? It is a big deal. Coumadin harms people. Well, further than that, you never get insured again. What's that? You never get health insurance again. Yeah. So it, a diagnosis of PE is, you know, it's a significant diagnosis. Does everyone understand? I'm going to move on. This is, this is probably the most complicated of the ones. So if it's moderate, if you have a positive D-dimer, same thing, chest CT, CT venography. If it's negative, it's pretty good. It's negative predictive. I was 89%. If your chest CT is negative, if you do chest and legs, it's 92%. And most people can live with that. So if you have moderate clinical probability, they had a positive D-dimer, but chest CT came back right as negative, you're done. If it comes back positive, you treat, okay? Based on this, is 92% positive predictive value for if you do chest CT and CT and legs as well is 90%. So this is pretty clear cut, right? Moderate, positive, D-dimer, positive CT, treat. If it's negative, you leave alone. And for high, it's pretty much the same thing. So you have a high clinical probability, you CT their chest and or their legs, and if it's negative, okay, I just wouldn't, you know, just a chest CT has a negative predictive value according to the PyoPet study of only 60% and somebody with a high clinical probability and um, that you go right to chest CT on. So what it's saying basically is that, you know, it, it's the person I was talking about, you know, cast, you know, the China trip got run over by a train, and there's tachycardic with chest pain, and the CT comes back where it's negative. That's not somebody that, that, that should bother you, okay? Your clinical judgment has a lot to do with this. That should bother you. And these aren't the people that you just kind of wheel out, okay? And these people may need to have either their legs done, have ultrasound with their leg, or have some type of further imaging, or empiric anticoagulation, you know, with Lovenox and be re-imaged, okay? So if it's bothering you that it was negative, so we all had that, right? It comes back negative. You know, they, they got the classic signs and symptoms, it comes back negative, and we're like, what happened? Okay? You know, that, that you, should, you should not ignore that. If you do their chest and their legs, it's 82% negative predictive value. So that's good. And this side's easy. If it's positive, you just treat. So basically, the PyoPad study, what it did was, um, I love that. Uh, this is actually a real sign. Um, the the PyoPad study, basically what it said, it, 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 most of it's, what it said was obvious. But the biggest thing it said was, you know, be careful about giving people the diagnosis of PE that necessarily shouldn't get it and anticoagulating them for three months. And it also said, don't ignore people that clinically you're very concerned about whether a study came back negative, okay? And it said you might need to take that step further. And for us as emergency providers, that's the hardest thing, right? Because we pick up the phone and we're like, oh, that, you know, the chest CT is negative, and then everybody like says, okay, well, send them home. And that's where it's most difficult. We've got somebody that your concern has it. And that's why you need to, to take that stuff further where you might suggest they need to come in, you know, get maybe a dose of Lovenox and either be re-imaged or imaged in a different modality. Okay? That's it. That's all I have. Kind of quick and dirty, okay? And if you want this um, PowerPoint presentation, I can email it to you. Just let me know. But um, that's about it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. So.